The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. Hello and welcome to Know the Score. I'm your host, Don DeLorente, and today I'm joined by Know the Score alumnus, none other than Nabias Wilborn. What's going on, Nabias? Man, not much, brother, man. Just trying to make it. You know how it goes. I know, man. Now that you've moved on to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette covering the Pirates, uh, they had a very Interesting offseason, put a lot of work in as they uh, made a lot of wholesale changes. So just talk about the move up to Pittsburgh, uh, how the season started off pretty strong for you guys, but kind of uh, waned off. So uh, talk about what you're looking forward to because spring training is right around the corner. Yeah, man. Oh, we got about three weeks before pitchers and catchers report down. The Pirates do their spring training at Bradenton, Florida. So getting ready. For, I just booked my flight like yesterday. So... You know, at least my flight going down and, yeah, getting ready for six weeks of spring training, which comes at a good time because it was 25 degrees today here in Pittsburgh. So that's <laughs> definitely something that, you know, I've had to kind of adjust to with the weather. But with the ball club, I mean, you know, they got off to a good start. Um, well, I want to say a good start and okay start. Then they kind of got hot and they went into the all-star break two and a half games out, out of first place. And... They were behind the Cubs, and there was a series in Chicago at Wrigley. And I'm sitting there in Wrigley, and they got swept that weekend. And I remember saying to my editor, I was like, yeah, they're done, bro. I mean, it was just the way that sweep happened. It's just nothing went right for them that whole weekend. And they came in with such high hopes. They had two all-stars, Josh Bell and Felipe Vasquez. We'll get into Vasquez a little later because he ended up being in jail by the end of the year for um, alleged child pornography and other um, various incidents, which is still kind of wild to even consider. But, yeah, at that point in mid-July, they were right there in the mix. And then from there, they they went into the All-Star break. After the All-Star break, they went 4-28, and which – pretty much killed their season and by the time the trade deadline came they were trying to you know get rid of people they would have traded Vasquez didn't get the right trade for him then two weeks later Vasquez ends up in jail so when all this thing on all the season breaks down by September everything is over the manager Clint Hurdle gets fired the general manager Neil Huntington gets fired Oh, and then the um, team president, Frank Cooley, got fired. So all within like a span of two weeks after the season, which quite honestly was very odd if, if you're going to can all those people, just do it on the same day. There was a point for like two weeks where Neil Huntington was leading a manager search, and then they had to stop the manager search because they fired the general manager. So that was the thing that happened. And after all that, they did end up making some good hires, so – New manager is Derek Shelton, who came over from the Minnesota Twins as their hitting coach. The Twins obviously had a great season last year. 
They got Ben Charrington, who was the GM of the Red Sox when he won the 2014 World Series. And um, team president's man named Travis Williams, who doesn't have much of a baseball background, but he did work for the Penguins for a lot of years when they were really successful. So, um, And they hired a new first base coach, a new third base coach, a new pitching coach, and I think some new ushers and security people as well. <laughs> well, we'll definitely be following uh, Pittsburgh season, and uh, we'll try to have you on in the midst of the baseball season, especially with the news that we'll talk about later on. We'll see how things are going when a couple of particular teams come into town. But first, we have to talk about the National Football League. It was championship Sunday as the AFC and NFC played their representative championship games to see who would represent each conference in the Super Bowl. And the San Francisco 49ers, they demolished the Green Bay Packers 37-20, to so they're going to represent the NFC. Uh, wasn't that much better than the game they played on Sunday night when Green Bay came off their bye week. It looked about the same, except for uh, San Francisco did them dirty with the pass that night. On this night, they just ran and ran and ran. Well, I mean, with the 49ers, man, it's it's scary how many different ways they can beat you. <clears throat> I mean, they can absolutely beat you with the pass. I mean, people kind of giving Jimmy Garoppolo a hard time. I think what? I think you would have had like eight passes. Eight tonight. passes, right. Yeah, so people kind of give him a hard time about that. But, hey, man, look, when your running game is working the way it is, why pass it? I mean – why go against something that's working? Particularly once you get a lead, you definitely just keep running the ball and finish the clock out. So there was no contextual reason for him to throw the ball a bunch of times. So I, I think he did what he had to do. But we've also seen Jimmy Garoppolo win games for his offense. So they're a good ball club, man. And, you know, Jimmy G's still young. They have a pretty young ball club there. And... You know, they're going to be around for a while. And then you look at the Packers, man, you got to wonder how much time they truly have left, particularly with Aaron Rodgers. You think he turned 36 in December, and he's going to go into next year as a 36-year-old quarterback? I mean, how many more? I mean, he had a great season, 26 touchdowns, four interceptions, you know, put up yards, did what he does. But it's starting to appear that the quarterback championship game is for young men. You saw Brady lose. You saw Breeze lose. I mean, you go on down the line up here in Pittsburgh, we don't know what Ben Roethlisberger is going to be again. And so you look at the two quarterbacks who are, who are in the Super Bowl, and then you look at the landscape. You look at the Lamar Jacksons of the world. You look at, you know, the Deshaun Watsons of the world. You know, you look at all these guys, what do they have in common? They're young, they have good legs, and they can throw it. And the old guys, I think their time is almost up. I think what people fail to realize is that Kyle Shanahan was the offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons in the biggest Super Bowl comeback ever. And I think from that game on, he's been in a position oh, where – if he ever gets a team good enough again to make a run like that and it's working, he's just going to keep doing what's working because he's never coming off a lead again. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely think he learned from that mistake. I mean, it was a big mistake. So, right. Because against Minnesota, when Jimmy G got shaky, when he was throwing it around a little bit, he just was like, Zoop! started handing it off. He didn't throw it anymore like the whole rest of the game after that. He threw a pick, and then he almost threw another pick, and then he didn't throw anymore. Actually, it's funny you mentioned that, man. There's a really good article in The Athletic um, that Tim Kawakami wrote, um, and Shanahan basically really discussed that moment and really broke it down and talked about what he learned from it. So, you know, I don't know how many of the listeners out there subscribe to The Athletic. It's not as expensive. I recommend it, but this article was really good. And he basically said, you know, hey, look, man, we had a 28-3 lead and we blew it. And part of the reason why we blew it was my coaching. And, I mean, and that, I think the fact that he can look at it and learn from it, I think is a beautiful thing. And that's what life is about. That's what we should be doing. We should get better when we deal with adversity. Right, right. Now we'll move over to the AFC side where the Kansas City Chiefs, they started slow again, but they got it going and they sped past the Tennessee Titans 35-24 to to advance to the Super Bowl for the very first time since 1970, since the merger, since the very first Super Bowl. So it's going to be a lot of fun for these fans in Kansas City. They get the trophy that their owner, uh, the trophy is named after their famous owner, Lamar Hunt. Lamar Hunt, yeah. So it's a real special time for them, real special time for Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid. Um, I mean, what can you say about this group uh, two weeks in a row where it looks like the road team has the perfect setup, the perfect start to spring the upset, and then, man, once they decide to start turning it on, they just blow past you and blew their doors off. I think this week it was, what, uh, five straight drives with a touchdown? Man, them boys are stupid, man. I mean, (laughs) seriously, I mean, I wish I had a better way to even describe it, man. Them boys, my homes and that whole crew, I mean, man, they just fast, bro. I mean, it's like them boys, them boys, they wanted they could be a four by four relay, whatever they wanted to do athletically. They can. I mean, with Tyreek Hill and and Miko Harbin, man. I mean, this kid, and it's funny with Harbin, like, uh, he went to high school in Georgia. We'll 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 talk about Elberton, Georgia, Elbert County, and you know he was pretty highly recruited, uh, but he didn't really have great great success at Georgia, but the potential was there. But, I mean, that's just what happens in Georgia when you have so many guys under Kirby Smart. And he's just gotten to the NFL and has flourished. I mean, you look at Tyreek Hill, obviously there's some issues there with some previous transgressions. But that boy on the field, man, he's cold. Right. And it was crazy. They're doing this, and, and they and they still don't have the running back kid they would have had. That um, What's the man? Yeah, Kareem Hunt. Yeah, think about it. I mean – you know, now he did what he did and it was wrong, but just from a football perspective, think about Green Hunt with this ball club. My God. Right, right. I mean, they, Andy Reid, give him credit, give that whole crew up their credit. 
they have built a juggernaut, and whew, it's gonna be a fun Super Bowl, man. I think we have to start giving Andy Reid credit for two things: for his offensive, um, what I want to say, not creativity, but just his ability to move with the times of the offense and not necessarily NFL offense, and his willingness to always give a black quarterback a chance. I think he's one of the longest-running head coaches that's had the most black quarterbacks in the league, if you go back over his history. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you look at a guy like that, right? You look at him, and he's just one of those people who will make it work. And he will do what it takes to win. Um, yeah, I definitely think that he has been an early adopter to the quote-unquote mobile quarterback. Uh, I think he's been an early adopter to a lot of different things. I think he's the type of person where he's going to look at what he has and then cater what he does to what he has as opposed to there's a lot of coaches who are like, hey man, this is my system. This is what we're going to do. This is who we are. And that's cute. It is. It's real cute. But eventually, that gets old, bro. And eventually, if you're really a good coach, you're going to have to adapt. And Andy Reid, over the years, has really found ways to adapt. And I commend him for doing that, seriously. Uh, Let's just give a shout-out to the Tennessee Titans uh, with the – a run in the season that kind of changed when they decided to move on from uh, Marcus Mariota uh, in a move that seemed kind of controversial, actually, in the game against the Kansas City Chiefs, where Tannehill led them back uh, to win the game in the fourth quarter. It kind of started their run. Uh, just talk about their future. It uh, looks like Vrabel, um, he's always been confident, but last year they lost in the last game of the season to get to the playoffs this year. Uh, you know, they got in a little bit more comfortably and they made quite a run, impressed a lot of people uh, with their success that they had this year. So just talk about their future for next year. It uh, looks like they're going to be in a spending spree because they're going to have to sign Tannehill back. I don't think they can let him walk after what he did. And uh, just the emergence of Derrick Henry finally living up to that, you know, great potential that he's always had. Man, Derrick Henry looked incredible in those first two playoff games. And unfortunately... You know, for him and them, uh, once they once the Chiefs really started rolling offensively, they just kind of went away from him. So, you know, because he had 76 yards and then they just I don't think he got a carry in the second half after after that second touchdown for the Chiefs when they when they when they scored, I think, on that first possession, second half. Right. Derrick Henry didn't touch the ball again. And. You know, it's hard to get yards. You got to get in the ball. So, but their whole thing seems to be predicated on, it's kind of interesting. It's like back to the future football where, mm-hmm. okay, hey, we're going to pound the ball. We're going to get a lead. And once we get that lead, we're just going to wear you out. And you know what? It worked. It got up to the AFC Championship game until they ran up against a real offense. So... You know, I I don't know what it's like long term, but I tell you what, they can win a lot of football games the way they're doing it because who does that? Right. Not a lot of teams in this day and age. Exactly. They, they, they're, their whole thing is a different style of football. So, you know, I, I think it could work. I like Vrabel. 
I think he's a very adaptable coach. I think he's learning and growing, and they got a chance to be good. But it's also the NFL, man. Very few things last. Right. Nothing's <laughs> the same two years in a row. Right, right. It's just like we're saying all this now. Oh, they got a big window and all these things. But, man, one day you look up, somebody gets hurt, and those windows close quickly. But I like the way the Titans play. I like their attitude. I like their whole vibe. They they carry themselves, you know, like like an old school football team. So I hope they do well just because I like that style of football. But we'll see because, you know, as we know, it's an offensive league. Right, right. Now we'll talk about some of the coaching hires. We'll just run through the list. Uh, Ron Rivera went to the Washington football team. Joe Judge, former special teams coach of the Patriots. He was hired by the Giants. Mike McCarthy got hired by the Cowboys. Kevin Stefanski got hired by the Browns. And Matt Rule got hired by the Carolina Panthers. So this has brought forth, again, another highlight, spotlight onto the Rooney Rule and how come none of the assistants that were black or the minority assistants that we hear about as coordinators all of last year through this season. Oh, yes, Eric Bieniemy should be first on the list for a job or Robert Sala or, you know, whomever, wherever you look, turn. There's always three or four really talented black coordinators or coaches, position coaches that everybody's high on, but they never get these jobs. So now everybody's talking about rechanging the Rooney rule. Just, you know, weigh in on you know, man, what you got. I mean, that's cool. They can change the rule, but the rule ain't the problem, man. Right. The, the problem is these owners, man. They they aren't trying to hire black people. I mean, I, I wish there was a better way to say it. I wish there was a better way to – I wish there was a less, um, how do I say, jarring way to say it, but there isn't. It's just the cold reality, man. If they were, if they were serious about diversity, there would be diversity. Right. It, it, it ain't hard, man. I mean – Look, man, I, I work in I work in journalism where we have a lot of these same issues. And the reality is if people want it, then they'll do it. Mm-hmm. And they won't have to be forced. Like, you know, I'm tired of all like and commit I commit the Fritz Pollard group where, you know, they send these names every year, but even that kind of gets old because you're doing the work for them. If they mm-hmm. want to hire black people and find them, they will. But they don't want to. And look, who knows what's going to happen with the with the Giants coach? They hired the wide receivers coach from the Patriots. Uh, what's his name? Joe Judge. All right, Joe Judge, right? I ain't even know his name because I ain't never heard of him. Which is one of those things where it's like most of the time, at least they try to hide it when a, you know, a coach gets hired. You kind of know who he worked with, what he did, and why that coach is getting the opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what Joe Judge did to deserve this opportunity other than just exist. And, hey, it may work, but it's just frustrating because I dealt with this a lot of my own career where – I would get told, hey, you don't have enough beat writing experience for this job. So, you know, we're going to hire someone else. And then you find out who they hired 
that's the other thing about my business. You always know who gets hired because everybody has that personal news announcement. So you know, you eventually know who got the job. All right. So then you look and that person has less experience than I had. But it's, oh, well, we, we're going to take a shot on him. But every time they take a shot on somebody, it's always somebody white. And I think that's where it becomes, it, it really becomes frustrating and it becomes hard. And and I think it's intentional. I think they almost want to hear people stop or make people stop even trying. And they definitely want us to stop talking about it. Because whenever I mention any of this, I get, oh, why are you making it about race? Why are you, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's just like, all right, man, come on. Okay, now... I guess I guess this would probably be the reverse of what we're talking about since coaching I think is kind of the entry head coach is like the entry level to this but also the lack of minority general managers not even team presidents don't even think that lofty just can we get a few more black general managers who may actually have some contacts with some black coaches who they may actually be able to get a real consideration from I think that maybe would help in some regards too, because a lot of these teams use the general manager to go find coaches or hire coaches or interview coaches or however it works. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. Like, and it, I mean, like I said, let's not even get into ownership and team president. Like you said, right. GM, that level, it's just not happening. I mean, the people are there. Like there, there are, black coaches that could be head coaches mm-hmm. and that yeah. should get opportunities that just don't. So again, this is ownership and the people who ownership hired to make these hires. Cause ultimately for the coach, I mean, you know, the owner is in on these conversations too. He may not be like directly in on it, but you know, this is a person the owner has to be good with. You understand what I'm saying? Right. So again, if the owner is it saying, Hey, Let's make sure we have viable black and Latin or whatever type of candidates, right? Mm-hmm. If the owner's not pushing it, then it's just going to be the same thing. It's their same old golf buddies getting the same opportunity, the same nepotism. And that's where it just becomes tiring, man. It, it really, it, it becomes exhausting. And because it's, it's almost like, you know, we've been fighting the same fight for 40 years, some of us, depending on how old you are and what your situation is. And it's just, man, it, it is tiring. It truly is. I wish there was a better way to put it or say it, but nah, man, it's tiring. Going to move on to something that's kind of in the same vein. After an MVP season, a lot of people were trying to look down and say that Lamar Jackson – the season was tainted by his early playoff exit. Then, you know, it was all smoke and mirrors and gimmicks. I just want to get your feelings on just Lamar Jackson's season as a whole. And when you think about, you know, what people were trying to put on him after the early playoff exit. Man, look, that dude is incredible, bro. I mean, seriously, he really is incredible. I mean, there's no way around it. There's no way to even try to mince words. What he did last season was incredible. And, you know, people keep talking about, you know, the playoff loss. Okay, they lost the game, but that wasn't all on him. I mean, even if you look at his numbers, he had a, you know, solid game. 
What, he had 300 pass yards, 100-something running yards? Like, come on, fam. Only player to ever do it in the playoffs. Like, come on, fam. Like, people, like, if you go crap on that, then what, what, what are we doing? What, what, what are we actually really discussing here? And, again, that goes back to the same, the same old, you know, we got to be twice as good to get half as much. Man, I, I, that is tiring, bro. It, it really is exhausting because it puts so much pressure on black people to succeed above and beyond what we require of a white quarterback. And it's and it's just not fair. Right. I mean, I, I wish I had a better way to say it, but it's just not fair. Okay, put, put it like this. Josh Allen had some of the most bonehead plays you'll ever see out of any quarterback at any time in the playoffs, right? And people are very optimistic about Josh Allen going into next year, right? Yeah. Lamar Jackson did something no quarterback's ever done. Yeah, he had a couple of turnovers that were uncharacteristic for him, but basically kept his team in the game because his defense didn't show up that day. And everybody's down on what he's about to bring into the next season. That's the bizarre world of the media. Man, like I said, man, it's it's crazy because, you know, there's this whole thing of, oh, we're going to figure him out. We're going to figure him out. Man, whatever, man. But then they'll say, well, Josh Allen's going to get better. He's going to improve. So how come they're not going to figure Josh Bell out? I mean, Mm -hmm. Josh Allen out. Excuse Mm -hmm. me. I said Josh Bell. Think about the fires. Uh, How come they're not going to figure him out? How, How come he gets to get better? But... Lamar Jackson isn't. Like, come on, man. Like, it's so there. It's just, it's stupid. It really is, and it's embarrassing. But that's the life we have to deal with. Right. And then a lot of this is intentional because they, they want you to give up. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt like this as well. You talked about the older quarterbacks, right? Mm-hmm. You look through the ranks of high school, college, the dual threat quarterback is prevalent through all of football, right? Except for the NFL. So how are they going to keep the position that they covet the most as white as they can if they start letting too many of these guys do their thing and the media doesn't start to talk bad about them when they fail? Because that's the drawback that people have now. It's like, oh, you can't run your quarterback so much because he'll get hurt. So that tries to shy away from it. But now Lamar breaks all these records and shows, guess what? If your quarterback knows how to juke and jab and get out of bounds, you can run him and he'll protect himself and he'll be fine because the most dangerous place on the football field is the pocket. Oh, he can't throw. And then he said, I'm going to be all right. And then he just broke the record for Ravens touchdowns in a season. Broke Vinny Testaverde's record for that. Completion percentage off the chart. Oh, now he can't throw the ball outside the numbers. Oh, in the playoff game, like over half of his completions outside the numbers. Right. It's just it becomes <laughs> the moving goalpost. <laughs> right. And, Always. Uh, and again, that's where you just get to a point where it's like, okay, all right, they're not gonna get this man credit no matter what. So, what what do you do? Right. Right, just very frustrating. But I'm like you, man. I, I I think that he is just only going to grow. He shows you so much progression from the what seven or eight starts he had from last year through the playoffs to then coming back this year. So he's going to definitely put that same work in again in this next off season. And sky's going to be the limit uh, for Lamar Jackson. So I'm not going to be worried about anything about his season coming up. 
Um, this is Know the Score. I'm your host, Don DeLorente. I'm here with my special guest, Nabias Wilborn. Now we're going to transition over to MLB because, boy, they got some news going on over there. What we do know is that the Astros were stealing signals in the 2017 season. What we do know is that there's been three teams who've had managers get fired due to the scandal, the Astros, the Red Sox, and the Mets, due to Alex Cora being the bench coach of the time of this cheating scandal. He was named in the report. He got hired by the Red Sox, won a World Series with the Red Sox. He lost his job. Carlos Beltran, who was the only player named in the scandal, he was hired by the Mets this past offseason. He didn't even get a chance to coach a game, manage a game. He got thrown out just so they could get ahead of all the accusations and the things coming up because spring training, like you said, in the bias is like three weeks away. So go ahead, brother. Just give me your first of all your thoughts and 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 you know the punishments that came down from Major League Baseball to the Astros. Was it severe enough? Did it should it extend to the players? Even though no players were named except for the one player who was retired, and that was Carlos Beltran. Well, I mean, first of all, I think they were very intentional about naming like about naming Beltran in this, right? I mean, they made sure his name was there, and to me that. That was intentional. And I think part of that is because they wanted the Mets to pretty much have to make a decision on firing him or not. Which, by the way, if you're Brody Van Wagner, who's the GM of the Mets, and you didn't even ask Beltran about it, like, what are we, what are we doing? Like seriously, what, what what are we doing? I how I, I how do you have a full interview with this man? You vetted him and did this whole thing, and you didn't even talk to him about it. You didn't ask him, or even as this stuff is coming out over the last couple of weeks, you didn't say, "Hey, man." Uh, is your name going to come up in this? Is there anything we need to know? You didn't even ask. I, I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that Van Wagner has to get fired for that, but fam, I would be livid. Well, and here's the other part of this: if you're the Mets, you now have to hire a manager while the Astros and the Red Sox are on the market for a manager. Both of them have had more success than you, even though. You know, they got issues. Say what you will, the Astros still have a good ball club down there. I mean, they probably should have won the World Series last year. No disrespect to the Washington Astros who did win. I mean, that was a great series, but, the, I mean, the Astros had a lead in that series. They probably should have won it. And they're bringing most of that ball club back. Now, yeah, they will lose Garrett Cole, who was, I mean, amazing in that series. They lose Garrett Cole, but they still got Springer and Altuve and all those guys, man. And Verlander, I mean, they, 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 you know, once you get past what they did, which was just, it was bad. It was a bad look for baseball. It was a bad look for them. And it forever takes that 2017 World Series. But, and I think what makes it sad is 
they could have won without it. Mm-hmm. And they probably would have won without it. But you don't know. And because of that, that World Series is forever tainted. But all that being said, it is definitely a bad look for the sport of baseball. I just think that a lot of people have always, you know, these teams like the Astros, these teams who aren't your traditional winners, kind of like the same thing in college sports. When they jump up out of nowhere, it always gets people perked up, but they always want to hope and believe in the, you know, hey, we worked hard, we put together this group of young players, and we finally got the right chemistry, and we win. And that's the story that everybody wants to believe in. But then when you find out that there was cheating involved, it just taints it so much, especially for the guys who were, you know, like the Dodgers, you know what I'm saying, who've had people fired and, you know, people lost their jobs and pitchers have been well, moved to I different mean, teams and things well, like, like that. Like you mentioned the Dodgers. Like, like look at this, for example. Like, the knock now on their manager, which – is maybe even more unfair than ever is that he can't win the big one. Right. right? And you look at 2017, they lost to a team that cheated, and we're probably going to find out that the Red Sox cheated in 2018. So, you know, he's defined by World Series losses, you know, back-to-back World Series, back-to-back losses to teams who cheated. Mm -hmm. And so Clayton Kershaw, for instance, a part of his narrative is that he isn't good in the playoffs. Well, you know what? He was good in the playoffs in 2017. You know, 2018 especially, he was good. And they lose a World Series game that in 2017 where the Astros possibly cheated, and they got beat up in that game. So that goes to the narrative, well, Clayton Carshaw is good. What if they aren't cheating? You see what I'm saying? Nah. And then let's say – the Dodgers win one or both of those World Series. What are we saying about Kershaw now? What are we saying about the Dodgers manager now? What are we saying about that whole group? I mean, it 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 changed everything about the course of the way that that organization is perceived. Exactly. Exactly. And, and yeah, I mean, do we really know how much it helped or not? No. But they did it, and they were doing it, and and it is a big deal. So I, again, I don't know how. I'm curious to see how they go forward. I'm curious to see how they're treated when they go to visiting stadiums. I mean, there's a lot to this, man. Right, right. Now let's move on to the other thing that's always a controversial topic around this time of year. That's the Hall of Fame ballot. Uh, we got some first-timers that include Derek Jeter as the biggest name, Rafael Furcal, Josh Beckett, Alfonso Siriano. Um, that's probably about some dude, Paul Canerco, probably the guys who might actually have a really good chance. Everybody knows Jeter's going to get in. It's just, is he going to be a unanimous choice? And then you have the people who were close last year, like Larry Walker, uh, Omar Vizcale, so I think that that's what everybody's looking to see is just how close are some of these guys, even some of the steroid guys like Kurt Schilling who played in that era. How close is he going to be this year? He got 60, almost 61% last year. So we'll see uh, about guys like that. But 
I don't know if you get a vote, but since you are a writer, I'm pretty sure you have a good hold on kind of what people are thinking when it comes to voting. Um, what do you think about outside Jeter? How big do you think this class is going to be? Two or three more guys? Well, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I don't have a vote yet. I'm, I, I am a BBWA member. You have to have 10 years in. I'm a couple years shy. So hopefully, you know, I'll have to stick with this baseball writing thing, which God willing, I will. Um, I will get a vote eventually. But what we're looking at right now, and by the way, this guy named Ryan Thibodeau, not Mr. Tibbs, does a really good job of tracking all these ballots um, and all the writers, a lot of the writers give them to him. So, you know, um, what he's got is Jeter should be 100%. I think Larry Walker's going to get in at around 83-ish or so. And I think Kurt Schilling will get in at 78%. Personally, I'm not a big fan of Schilling's politics, but you know what? He was a great playoff pitcher and the Red Sox don't turn around their narrative without him. So, yeah, I, you got to give him his credit. Larry Walker is just incredible. He should have been in years ago. Jeter should be 100% because I think we've kind of reached that point where you'll see more guys get 100% who deserve it, which, you know, you always – you back in the day you used to get those, oh, well, if Babe Ruth wasn't 100%, then – Hank Aaron can't be 100%. Or, well, if Hank Aaron was 100%, then Ken Griffey can't be 100%. If Ken Griffey wasn't 100%, you see what I'm saying? It's right. Just, yeah, it's just stupid. Like, it's just dumb. So, you know, I now that the ballots are more public and it's more open, I think, quite honestly, people are embarrassed to make stupid votes like that. So, you see less of that, so you'll see more guys get 100% like we saw last year. So, you know, with Mariano Rivera getting 100%, so I think we'll see more of that when a guy is deserving. And, you know, now personally, I'm going to be honest, I've always thought that Derek Jeter was a little overrated. I've always thought that, you know, if he played anywhere else other than the Yankees, he'd still be a Hall of Famer, but he wouldn't be celebrated with this much fanfare. But nonetheless, he's a first ballot, 100% guy who should get it. Schilling will get in. Uh, it doesn't look like Bonds or Clemens are going to get in. Um, they're close. They're in the 70% range, at least with the public ballots that are out there. But I just don't think they're going to get that push this year. I think they should be in. If I had a vote, they would both get my vote. Uh, but I'd also vote for Manny Ramirez. And I'd also vote for Gary Sheffield. So, because I'm one of those people who I look at it like this. All right, we suspect that Bonds did some form of PEDs. We can suspect all we want to, but we don't know. We suspect Clemens did some. Okay, whatever. But they never failed a drug test, right? Mm -hmm. Last I checked. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm putting them in. Like, I, I get a vote hopefully in the next two, three years. And if they're still on the ballot when I'm a voter, they're going in for me on my on my ballot. Because I believe that Barry Lamar Bonds is the best baseball player I've seen with my eyes. I mean, obviously, I'm a little too young to have seen Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and you know some of these other guys, but Barry was it. Barry was the best baseball player 
I ever saw. Um, Roger Clemens is one of the best two or three pitchers I've ever seen. Now, again, like I didn't see Bob Gibson and, you know, all these different guys, but Roger Clemens was a bad, bad man. And he deserves to be in the hall. Manny Ramirez was an amazing hitter. He deserves to be in. Gary Sheffield as well. I mean, but then you look at it, and if they say, okay, we're going to punish the steroid guys, how come Andrew Jones gets very little love? Yeah. And this is a guy who is one of the best, literally one of the best center fielders of all time and can't get a sniff. And then I didn't even vote for Sammy Sosa. Yeah, there's a lot of if you look at the percentage of the guys that were on the ballot that have been and because nobody's been up there longer than I think like ten years or so. If you look at if you look at it, man, there's a lot of like Clemens and Bonds are just below sixty percent. But then some of the newer guys who are kind of outside of the steroid era, like Andrew Jones, yeah, they're only like seven eight percent. It's a it's really surprising. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it. It, it it it's very disappointing because there's no reason why someone like Andrew Jones shouldn't be getting more conversation. Now, there's some people say the way his career ended, you know, kind of had something against. Because there was a couple of years where he was just bad. He made a bunch of money. He got in shape and he was bad. But man, when he was good, he was incredible, and he deserves to be treated with the respect of the Hall of Fame. One final footnote on Derek Jeter. He should definitely thank Jeffrey Mayer when he goes into the Hall of Fame in his speech. Ha, I see what you did there. Because I am a Baltimore Orioles fan. Oh, man. You don't Bless know. And, yeah, that was supposed to be the year right there. And uh, everything changed when Jeffrey Mayer reached over the, uh, the, the wall and scooped that ball out of Tony Tarasco's glove because – if that out happens, Baltimore probably goes on to win and goes to the World Series, and they probably would have beaten the Braves. I don't know. Uh, I don't know, but yeah, it would. Well, no, been. I mean, but it would have been a, it would have been a World Series run, right. and and who knows what that does for the Orioles organization? I mean, because it's like you know, it's the same thing. Like you look at where in '91 when. You know, now that I'm because I've kind of covered both teams on the side of that play where, you know, for the Braves, Sid Sly changed everything that propelled them, mm-hmm. you know, to a very successful run. Whereas with the Pirates, it they went downhill after that, man. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of fascinating to see how these things go. But anyway, I say all that to say. You know, for for Jeter, man, I, I've just always kind of been not really a big fan. But, again, he played for the Yankees. He won those World Series. They won those World Series. And it's going to be one of those things where a lot of those guys get consideration. And he's the captain. So, good for him. Whatever. All right. We'll wrap up with Nabias with our final topic here. We'll just wrap up on this year in college football. They played their final game, the national championship game. And Joe Burrow 
shattered the record book. He completed the dream season. LSU defeated Clemson in the national championship game. Burrow threw for 463 yards and five TDs. Uh, just an absolute incredible run through college football, not only through the season, but the playoffs. He was probably even better than he was during the season. So just talk about Joe Burrow coming from Ohio State down to LSU last year. Not really that impressive. Seemed to come on towards the end of last year, but I don't think anybody saw all of this for a kid that was, you know, in the transfer protocol who wanted to play and didn't want to sit behind somebody else at Ohio State for one more year. Man, he had 16 touchdowns last year. He had 60 this year. Come on, man. I mean, nobody does that. Nobody. Like, seriously, like, who who improves by 45 touchdowns? Like, who does that? It doesn't happen. So, I mean, there's no way you could predict it. I mean, I thought LSU was going to be a good ball club because, you know, they they always have talent. Like, they've never – you know, not have players, but the way they came out this year was incredible. Then once they beat Bama, you knew they had it. And then they beat up on Georgia in the bowl and in the SEC championship game. And I mean, quite honestly, Georgia wasn't ready for that, for that type of battle yet. So, you know, whatever, but, um, nah, LSU was incredible. And I'm curious to see now if they could keep it going. Here's this guy, Ed Orgeron. Talk about people who got another opportunity. Here's a guy who, you know, didn't get the opportunity at at USC Southern Cal, and he found the perfect fit for him. LSU is where he needs to be, and he is where he's at, and he just has this incredible way of getting people to buy into what he's doing, and good on him. And I think the sky's the limit for that program. And you look at you look at it now, will it just be a back and forth between LSU and Alabama in the SEC West? Georgia's not going anywhere. I mean, it's going to be interesting, man, to say the least. Uh, last question. Do you feel that we're still in the Nick Saban era? Or do we have too many people close enough now where we can say that, you know, we got a couple more people in this race? Well, I think it'll be – I don't know that answer yet. And it's going to be tough because, I mean, Clemson – you talk about – we talked about earlier in college about how people create these juggernauts. I mean, Clemson was always a okay program or sometimes they have a very good year here and there. But what they've been able to put together with Dabo is simply phenomenal and goes against everything that's supposed to happen in college football. Like, most people, if you ask them, if you gave them a map of the state of South Carolina, they could not point out where Clemson University is. Mm-hmm. Most people don't even know that Clemson is actually the city that the school is in. Mm-hmm. And yet, you're getting you – know, but yet, you know, here's what and what they've always done, but now they've gotten even better at, is there's too many kids in the state of Georgia for UGA to get them all. And Clemson has done a great job of convincing those kids to make the two-hour drive up 85 to go to Clemson. And that's been a major thing for them. And, you know, UGA is trying to slow that pipeline down a little bit, but there's too many good kids for them to keep. They can't keep them all. So, yeah, Trevor Lawrence, 
might end up at Clemson instead of UGA because UGA already has two other quarterbacks. You know, Deshaun Watson a few years back ends up at Clemson instead of UGA. Now, some of that was on Mark Rick, but nonetheless, Georgia can't keep all the kids. So that's been a big thing for Clemson. But also, Clemson's been able to recruit nationally. Clemson's been able to get kids from Cali. They've been able to get kids from Florida. They, they've done a really good job of getting kids from Florida. Because, again, like the state of South Carolina, there's not enough talent there to sustain a full program like Clemson. So they have to be able to recruit Atlanta and Georgia. They have to be able to recruit South Florida. And they have been doing it. And once you build that pipeline, man, it is hard to stop. And Clemson at a point where they are going to be very tough to stop. Um, LSU, I think they're going to be around. UGA, they have definitely done a good job under Kirby Smart of closing some of those borders, keeping all those kids from Georgia, but going out and getting a big-time kid when they need to. So I don't know if the saving there is over, but he got work to do. I think that was the big reason North Carolina hired Mac Brown was to try to close off North Carolina a little bit because over the last few years you've had all these people like Todd Gurley and all these kids getting out of North Carolina and he hadn't had anybody being able to attract them to stay home. So I think that's a big reason why Carolina went with Mac Brown, somebody who's a known recruiter who can kind of keep some of these top recruits in state and keep them from going to Clemson, keep them from going to Georgia. And maybe get the ACC. I think that's the ACC's problem. They've got good schools. They've got good recruiting bases. But because they've been so down, everybody's coming in and poaching. And they can't keep them where they need to be. Because, I mean, there's no way that Miami and Florida State should be as low down on the totem pole as they are in college football these days. Well, where they are and, and where they can recruit from. Um... Wow, that's an interesting thing. Because you talk about Florida State, I mean, they should be way better than what they are. Uh, you talk about a lot of these programs, even UF. I mean, they've been kind of back, but not all the way back. Mm-hmm. And Miami can't seem to get back. So, I mean, it'll be it'll be interesting, man, to see how these things go. Because the other part is, there's so many good kids. There's so much more athleticism around the country now than there's ever been. Like, man, these kids are good, man. There's a lot of talented kids out there. And there's a lot of good freshman talent, too. And I think that's a lot different than maybe five or ten years ago. Is now, you know what I'm saying, but you can redshirt two or three guys and kind of hide them and then, you know, kind of sustain your, your, your program. But now you can't do that because, I mean, these kids are so good. You know, now with the transfer protocol and everything, with them not having to sit out, you know, they can just go. So you got to play a lot more kids, too. So I think that's causing a lot more of the athleticism to be shown is, you know, you can't redshirt a guy for a year to put some more weight on him because you might just transfer and he'd be like, man, we waste all this time. So we just put him well, on the field. And, that, and that's where, and that's where these, different, these different protocols come in because, like, for a school like Wisconsin, they're not getting the five-star kid. Right. They're getting the two and three stars. You know, that's just what it is. So what their whole program is based on building these kids up mm-hmm. and doing it the opposite way. Whereas, you know, if you're a UGA, you're getting the big boys. You're getting the five stars. 
So, but, you know, they transfer. They will transfer. You know, you look at the quarterback situation. Right. They, you know, what's my man went up to Ohio State? Yeah, Fields. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Justin Fields. So, I mean, that's, that's the game, man. I mean, it's very hard to keep a kid when he knows he can go play somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And, and big time and not just have to settle for, you know, whatever small little school or whatever, you know what I'm saying? These kids are transferring from Alabama to Oklahoma, from, mm-hmm. you know, Ohio State to LSU. It's not like, you know, they're going to somewhere Southwest State. Nah, man, it's, it's a different ball game, man. The transfer portal has changed the whole game. Right, right. Well, Tobias, man, I just want to thank you for your time. I'm going to give you a little bit of time here for some shout-outs and some thank yous and a final thought. If you have one, something that you'd like to talk about personally before we uh, sign off for this episode of Another Score. Oh, man, um, you know, first of all, man, just thank you, man, for reaching out and having me on, man. Um, miss doing, doing work with you guys, man. Just glad to see everything's going well. Um, as far as me, just follow me on Twitter at inwillborn 19 Check out my work at the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. Also, um, Snapchat and um, IG and all those Periscope. It's all the same. Inwillborn nineteen. That's N W I L B O R N one nine. That's where you can find all my work on the Post Gazette. And that's pretty much it. As far as the final thought, man, just. You know, as we look at this sporting landscape, man, uh, I think it's very important to realize that times are changing. Um, But particularly as men, I think it's very important that we continue to build safe spaces for women to be able to enjoy sport, both covering it and being in it and making sure that they're being treated fairly and with respect and if you see something going on you say something and make it clear to brothers that you know mistreating women mistreating mistreating women any women isn't cool all right thank you for that message definitely need to be heated in all aspects of life and not just in the sporting realm I'd like to thank Nabias for joining me once again to do a Back to the Future episode and know the score is definitely fun catching up with you. Definitely like to get your insight during the baseball season once it gets up and going again. Maybe we can get your spring training report after a couple of weeks, see how that's going down there in those 75 degree days down there in Florida. Like to oh, thank man. <laughs> the Libra icon, Dwayne, my regular co-host. I just thank everybody who listens to the CSPN and know the score. I don't really have a final thought for this week. I'm just uh, one more football game left to go. So hopefully it's a good one. Uh, the offense versus defensive matchup that everybody wanted. The whole country got the game that they, you know, were looking forward to. So hopefully it's a good game. It's close. And it's a lot of drama. And enjoy your Super Bowl party. So for my special guest, Nabias Wilbon, I'm Don DeLorente. And now you know the score.